Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us for this very special uh, event. We're obviously living through very chaotic and challenging times just now. Uh, and so it's very important for us at the RSA that we find ways to continue to explore new ideas, to look at the difficulties we face, uh, to respond to those opportunities as they arise. And so this is uh, another in our series of events that we're looking at for key thinkers uh, and contributors as we look to work through this. I'm delighted that we can be joined today by Dr. Catherine Trebek uh, of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're very much in demand just now, so it's fantastic to be able to get Such your time. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. So the format for today is that Catherine and I are going to have uh, a chat for about 30 minutes or so to just explore some of the ideas and the work that she's been doing uh, with colleagues and how that starts to influence as we try to build back better from this current crisis that we're in. If you're using Twitter, then uh, please use the hashtag RSA Trebek, uh, and that'll be a great chance for us to continue the discussion and debate uh, as we move forward from there. So Catherine, it's, uh, it's obviously a, a very unique period in history we're living in just now. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the work you've been doing had already picked up a lot of momentum before we went into this. So I wonder, just to set the scene, if you could give us a little bit of background to what WEAL is, how it came about, and maybe some of the initial ideas that you'd started to explore before uh, COVID-19 uh, reared its ugly head for us all. Okay, and thanks, Jamie, and thanks, everyone who's taken the time to join today. Really, really looking forward to the conversation later on. So the Wellbeing Economy Alliance uh, started a couple of years ago, and I describe it as having many mothers in that it was born of several organisations, some based here in the UK, some European, some in the US, coming together and saying, look, we're not going to have a chance at dealing with all the crises that are facing the world today if we don't collaborate. So they were unified by that sense that we need to collaborate together, recognising that there's so much amazing work happening to try to attend to all those multiple challenges facing the world, but it wasn't yet adding up to the sort of system change that we needed. And that speaks to the other bit of commonality across the, the now over almost 130, I think, members of We All, is that if we look upstream at so many of the challenges facing the world, whether it's the climate emergency, environmental breakdown, rising levels of loneliness, inequality, poverty, all those challenges. When you start going upstream and ask what are their root causes, you so often find yourself facing the economic system, how it operates, who's winning, who's losing, how we price things, what we incentivize, what's the business models. And so this idea that we have to transform our economic system is at the heart of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. And so that idea of putting well-being at the forefront of the economy is actually quite a very profound repurposing of the economic system that that was what spurned the, the chat that spawned the chance to sort of work together. And so we all's now this we call it a collaboration in the collective noun sense. Uh, it's a whole lot of different organizations, really diverse in their areas of emphasis, in the way they operate, in their strategy. But as I said, what's really connects them all is this idea that we have to transform the economic system sooner than later. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been very lucky to get to work with you and with some other members of that, that global network. And I think the, the approach to collaboration, to listening and to learning from, from different areas, I think is, is so critical. Uh, and as you say, so many of those deep-rooted issues that have both 
local examples and, and uh, interactions, but actually quite often rooted in a global economic uh, system. And on, on the size of, of challenges that we face with particularly the climate emergency, as, as you mentioned, what would you say are the, the characteristics of this well-being economy that would stand out as being different maybe from the, the system that we find ourselves uh, living through as we came into to this crisis? Yeah, so the idea of a well-being economy really speaks to this, this idea that we have to have humanity determining economics rather than the other way around. And in a way, if you think about the economic system that we had going into the, the current coronavirus crisis, it was an economic system geared up to increase GDP and, and all, the, all the activities purposed for that. Um, so we see human beings through their, their labour and the way we do business, the way we treat the environment, all purposed around increasing gross domestic product. And so we had you know, people treated as just-in-time inventory and we're seeing the, the impact of that now where we're recognising just the challenges of the insecurity of so many of people's working lives. So, so the idea of a wellbeing economy is saying it's got to be not geared up for, for growth but geared up to deliver ecological and human well-being. And so that's quite a, it's quite a repurposing of the economic system. It's saying, well, what, what is it about? Who is this operating for? On what terms? That's at, that's at the top level. And then you go underneath that and you think, okay, well, we have to transform how businesses operate, uh, how, how we're using commercial viability and sort of commercial feasibility to deliver wider social and environmental benefits. How are we pricing nature? Are we including in the prices the impact on the environment? How are we doing democracy? How are we designing our city? So it's so it's multi-layered, it's complex, it's, it's such an extraordinary system shift. And hence, it's really challenging. Mm. What's heartening, though, is that there are so many people working on this in all different corners of the wellbeing economy agenda. And there's lots of different phrases, actually, that people use to speak to that idea of an economic system that is purposed for human and ecological benefit, first and foremost, whether it's regenerative economies or solidarity economies or donut economies. I mean, there's so many, so many phrases that people have and they have a you know, slightly different emphasis. But I think what, again, what unifies them is this idea that the economy needs to serve people and planet first and foremost. And you have the economy in service of that. And that, and that really is, I mean, I can't get away from that, How what a fundamental shift that is from what we had going into Corona. And I think what we're seeing now is for the first time in decades, we're saying, okay, actually the economy doesn't matter right now. Right now, what matters most urgently is people's well-being and people's health. So we're starting, we're starting to sort of put the economy in its place. And I think when we talk about an economy that comes out of corona, I know we're going to come back to that, it has to be one that thinks about what sort of economy is required to service the, the needs of people and planet. And it's a very different one. I mean, if you think about, you know, the economic system we had going into Corona was one with rising levels of in-work poverty, rising food banks, rising levels of loneliness, rising levels of suicide, flatlining life expectancy. It, it wasn't, wasn't working for enough people. And people often would say, well, we had, it was a broken economy. I, I don't use that term, broken economy, because actually that was an economy that was working very much as the way it was designed to do by people who were, had control over resources to design the rules of the game. 
Donella Meadows at one of the most amazing systems thinkers speaks about the success to the successful. And so we had an economy designed up in a way that siphoned wealth up to the top. And we can talk about the, the manifestation of that if you want, but it's re- well-being economy is about putting, twisting that on its head with all the layers of changes. So it's a very long answer, Jamie, but it's, it's, no, so, it's so complex. So it's not, a, yeah. it's not an easy answer other than the short, you know, the, the soundbite is humanity determining economics rather than the other way around. And I think exactly that. In, in many ways, when we are in such a challenging situation and, and already were, we don't want necessarily the kind of short, easy answers. We need the answers that are going to work and that are going to help us to to move beyond and to be more resilient in the future. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's really struck me about this crisis is that many of the issues, now of course, you know, COVID, the disease itself is is something unto itself. These will arise over time. But the ability of that that disease to to spread, to get into the population, to move around the world, the inequalities that I think help foster its spread and, and its impact more on certain parts of the community than others, these are long-standing, and it feels to me that it's something about that societal uh, and economic resilience for people mm-hmm. that we've really been allowing to kind of drift below the, the radar. Uh, and I mean, I, I think it's fascinating, as you say, that the changes and the, the challenge had started to be there already. Uh, I remember being at an event that we organized uh, from the RSA perspective with our colleagues in RSA US in Pittsburgh, uh, and hearing... Um, someone from the Mars Foundation, so for the Mars uh, Confectionery Company, talking about saving capitalism, but very much by balancing, um, you know, the, the, the importance of people, place and planet, you know, and, and that was from a, a, a multinational corporation. I think the language has started to be there, but what strikes me, and I, I wonder if this is what you're experiencing just now, is that whilst this crisis is and should be dominated by the immediacy of keeping people safe, you know, first and foremost, we have to minimise deaths and, and illness for, for people as much as we can. It feels that there is a space to start to look to the future, to how this, this changes. And in a sense, almost speeding up some of those processes. So whether that's through certain ideas. Now, you know, as, as you and, and anyone else who has to spend time with me knows, I'm very interested in the idea of basic income. That's gone from... Mm-hmm relatively fringe to suddenly being discussed as policy. We're seeing it around different parts of the economy. Now, without whether people agree or disagree with the individual policies, it feels it's better. Are you finding that this crisis is opening up that opportunity and maybe changing some of the people who would have been reticent or hesitant about participating in in some of the kind of big system thinking that you're talking about? Let me answer by going back to some of the points in your, your earlier part of your reflections there. One, one is the, the idea of easy answers because prior to COVID, I think my critique of social policy uh, was that so often we reached for the easy answers, which meant we were going towards downstream amelioration measures, sort of end of pipeline, what we, what we describe in sort of in, particularly in Scotland, this idea of failure demand. And so much of our political manoeuvring, our apparent wins in in social justice terms, in getting policy changes that we wanted, uh, were really about that sort of sticking plaster territory. And we we pat ourselves on the back if we've been able to redistribute income sort of marginally um, or have a tiny bit of top up on on out of work benefits or in work work tax credits. So rather than saying, 
why are people working and not having enough to put food on the table? Or why has the gap between rich and poor opened up so much in the first place? Or, you know, all the, or in defensive, um, defensive expenditures is what ecological economists would talk about. So we have these waves of downstream activities, which were to an extent attempts at, at their best humanizing mm-hmm an inhumane and unsustainable economic system. And that's sort of where we got stuck. Uh, A lot of amazing charitable effort, a lot of social policy effort. And I don't want to denigrate that by any means because it is so important. Helping people survive tomorrow and next week is vital. But what, what a wellbeing economy approach would say is that's vital, but it's not enough. We also need to raise our gaze upstream uh, to the drivers of those. And we can, we can come back to that in the, in the discussion later. Another point you made is around resilience and sort of one of the definitions of resilience is about having diversity and redundancy in a system. And if we think about so many of the economic practices that we had prior to going in, into COVID, they, they saw redundancy as in spare capacity and diversity as inefficient and counterproductive to, to productivity benefits. So, so we have even human beings, not just you know, items in a, in a factory's inventory, but human beings being treated as just-in-time inventory. So no longer was it, you know, car parts for a, for a Korean car factory that were just-in-time inventory. We now have so many of, of people in, in the UK being treated as just-in-time inventory, literally on the demand at the click of an app. And then we've seen that, that sort of that, and let alone the supply chains, and which is why local supply chains are now coming, coming into their own. And so we had the sort of economic system geared up in a way that was counter to that, those ideas of, of resilience. But I think we can do better at, but than just resilience. Um, I've been told, and I don't know if it's true, or maybe, maybe some Gaelic speakers might be able to correct me if not, but I've heard in Scots Gaelic, they use the same word for resilience that they use for long suffering. And so an idea, this, this idea of being resilient to something is essentially being told to toughen up and cope with it better. And so resilience is important right now, but which is why we're talking about build back better. It's not enough just to be resilient to shocks. We need to stop those shocks happening, whether it's shocks through climate breakdown or shocks of inequality or loneliness or alienation. And so in terms of your, the final part of your question around what's opening up, I mean, now political scientists talk about the Overton window, this, this space of which what is essentially politically feasible, politically palatable, and how that can move. And I'd say it can move backwards as well. And I think we're, we're seeing, you know, it's not a, this nice linear arc of, arc of progress in terms of what's palatable to politicians. I mean, we, we do see retrograde steps. But I think what's extraordinary is the Overton window has been completely upended. So many things are on the table now that even six weeks ago, we would have been laughed out as being, you know, being d- dismissed as romantic or naive yeah. or, or a fluffy bunny, as I as I've been <laughs> called, called before. And 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 so what? And I think it's actually very very fragile. I think mm-hmm. there is a risk that once the emergency stage is over, we won't go back to business as usual because because that won't happen. The risk I think that what I'm afraid of is that instead of going back to business as usual, it'll be a more toxic form of business as usual, where such that they were the labour rights gains, the environmental regulation gains, such that they were and inadequate as they were, but they were some, they will be seen as luxuries that are unaffordable in, in the economic crisis, that we need, you know, the mantra that we need to just grow the economy, we need to get the economy back on its feet or fire the cylinders again is 
I think there's a very strong risk there that the sort of austerity that came after the 2008 global financial crisis will will be seen as sort of a fairly light touch austerity between compared to what might come. And so we need to, with every, every ounce of our effort, really change the conversation that it can't just be about recovering an old economic to, if I, I think I've got you, you can still hear me. We have to use this opportunity to really transform how we do the economy and how the economy is purposed and, served and designed and who it is serving and all the layers that go with that, which is difficult in crisis moment, but it certainly means things are on the table. And I think the, the journey of UBI is a really, really good example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when there isn't going to be the amount of formal work that we had going into COVID, you know, low quality though so much of that was, that we're gonna get our, have to get our heads around shorter working weeks, and, and sort of decoup decoupling people's livelihoods from formal employment. I, mean, I think that's one of the things that's, that's always really struck me is kind of that creation of, or, or the kind of assimilation of work as an idea into um, solely being your paid employment. Um, so, you know, it's it, rather than work for me being how you spend your life, how you use your skills and your, your connection in a multitude of different ways, um, that we've actually reduced it to simply paid labour and, and across the political spectrum. Um, and I think there's a really powerful positive opportunity to, to actually challenge that and say, well, how do, we, how do we use this for good and give people a different way? I remember always being struck that somebody um, talked about, you know, the power of language and how previously when you didn't have a job or you lost your job, you were made unemployed. Mm. It's implied a period in between occupations as opposed to moving to this idea of being redundant. You were made redundant. You were no, you were no longer needed uh, any longer. And I think there's something really powerful about how we, we challenge or we address um, this, this feeling of how we productively use our life and actually do that in a way that can be sustainable within you know, the climate challenges we face, let alone uh, economic systems. Yeah, indeed. And of course, feminist economists have for decades <laughs> been telling us that there is so much more to activity and productive, useful activity than just that is what is counted in sort of, our sort of more formal orthodox understandings of employment. A, a colleague of mine, when I used to work with Oxfam, a wonderful South African colleague, he's, you know, he said he actually doesn't, he doesn't know any um, women who are out of work, but he knows women who are not in formal work. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we this is part of this, this, the grappling with those, those new realities we're going to get, have to get our heads around. I mean, people were talking about it before in terms of the sort of automation and technological changes about what's going to happen to the, the future of work. Well, it's now smashing us in the face. There won't be the availability of jobs in the formal sense before. So we have to share better those that are available and make sure they're, they're better quality. But there's, there is loads to do. See, this is one of the paradoxes. There is so much to do. I mean, you only have to walk along your street in your local community to see that there, it's not as if there's a lack of need of activity, but it is how we provide for that. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see I'm waiting to see some of the research that will be coming out, looking at, for example, how people are spending their furlough time. So if people have mm -hmm. been made furlough, they're still, still having 80% of their income. And so for those people who are lucky enough to find that that is adequate and able to use their time 
perhaps to volunteer. So still wanting to be active. It's going to be really fascinating to see the, the patterns and trends in, the, in that activity. What sort of activities are people undertaking? Uh, is it volunteering? What sort of volunteering? Is it learning new skills? Is it, you know, or is it the, a lot of it probably will be home, homeschooling uh, and that new appreciation for the value of teachers. So it's, it's going to be really, I mean, there's going to be so much. I mean, there's a lovely phrase, wasn't there, at the beginning of um, the lockdown, someone saying, I have now been homeschooling my children for one day and I now think teachers should be paid 150,000 pounds. Yeah, absolutely. And I, think, and I think we're sort of really, that. I mean, that's some of the other lessons that, that Corona is revealing is what sort of different activities really, really matter to us. Um, and, and it is those that keep our communities together uh, in so many different ways and keep our streets clean. And so repurposing jobs, sharing them better, but also better calibrating how we reward work to their social value is going to be one of the questions we're going to have to grapple with. Absolutely. And I, I think there's two things it really feels for me with this. So one is, Exactly that, that appreciation. You know, I, I have three kids, uh, love them dearly, but yes. They're very uh, cute, I've seen the photos too. I miss school and I miss uh, I miss the amazing work that the teachers at the school do with them. So, uh, you know, I think it will be that appreciation. But that also links into the fact that, you know, six weeks ago, we were talking about banning unskilled workers from the country because what did they bring to us? Well, actually, a lot of them are, are keeping the country functioning. And I think that challenges some of those political assertions that, that we've seen. I think also linked into that is it feels that this is an opportunity where people are experiencing a lot more of the system than perhaps society as a whole did previously. So when you talked about universal credits and its potential, you know, its failings there, actually a lot of us are very lucky to not have to interact with that. And so we didn't see what that meant. But now suddenly self-employed people are having to, to engage with the system and realise the challenges. You know, you're talking about the, the role of, of women and, and the amount of work. I mean, I think carers in particular uh, it has started nowhere near enough yet, but started to highlight how much challenge they are under every day of mm -hmm. the month uh, and all the time. And actually, the financial support isn't there. A lot of the restrictions that we're finding suddenly thrust upon us, um, are, you know, are things that people people experience all the time. And my hope is, and maybe leading into, well, how, where do we go next? Because I agree with you, we can't presume that this leads to a big paradigm shift and everything becomes fantastic without us actively making it happen. Um, one of my hopes, and feel free to dispel me of my, my <laughs> wild idealism here, but one of my hopes is that actually, I think you've seen an amazing outpouring of empathy from people. So whilst we see the newspaper reports about people in the park or having barbecues or, you know, various medical officers going against the advice that they give to, to everyone else, um, I actually think the vast majority of people have stuck to what they've been asked to do. And they've done that on the basis that it's not, thankfully, because most of us are at the frontline risk from this disease is to protect other people. Yeah. And I suppose I wonder, how do we harness that empathy? How do, we, how do we build back better in a way that actually starts to really use maybe some of that this year? Or maybe I'm wildly optimistic and that's just a, a misrepresentation of the system. There was a, there was a beautiful uh, poster that I saw a photo of on social media right at the beginning of this, and I'll, I'll, I'll misquote it, but the, the sentiment was on the along, actually I'll, I'll tweet it after this so people, people can see it. It's just beautiful sentiment. But it, it's along the lines of you might go out and see the empty streets and think that it's the end of the world. 
but actually this is one of the greatest signs of love for strangers and collective solidarity that you can imagine because mm -hmm. people are locking themselves away to, to benefit people they will never, ever meet. And, so, and so the message of that is, you know, when you see these empty streets, remember that actually what an extraordinary sign it is. And I, and I, I love that. So in terms of your question, how we, how we harness that and have that feed into our politics, into our economic design, I mean, I think it's got to be about much more citizen participation in the design of, design of politics. And we were starting to see hints of that uh -huh. before lockdown in terms of this sort of growing awareness of the appreciation of activities like citizens' assemblies, where people would come together and deliberate. And the word deliberate and deliberative democracies is so important here. This isn't just sort of flashing the pan decision-making. This is people really reflecting and taking time to listen to each other. And so the more we can inculcate our politics with those sorts of processes, the more we'll have a chance to really make the most of those bonds of empathy that happen when we, when we learn from each other, when we sit down with each other, when we have conversations with each other. And I think that that speaks to one of the challenges that how the economic system impacts our political system, that with rising levels of inequality, we just don't know each other enough to be able to have those bonds of those bonds of empathy you know people are separated literally behind gated communities and different schools and different shopping centers and you know driving their, their cars and with tinted windows and what's happening now i mean it irks me when people say you know we're all in this together because we we patiently aren't i mean I, i'm very privileged sitting here in my little little flat in glasgow very very well protected with the lucky enough to be able to work from my kitchen table. I mean, what an extraordinary privilege. So, so we're not all in it together. But what's happening now is we're all having to obey the same rules, which wasn't the case in the past. And so I guess we have to ensure that we keep that, that idea of collect connectedness and bring it to the fore of politics. And practical ways of doing that are things like citizens' assemblies. And some of them are moving online and people are getting very adept at these. I mean, your mm -hmm. colleagues are going to have to do this in a few minutes around managing large numbers of people on, on Zoom calls. Uh, we're seeing politicians are, are having their question time online. So we're starting to get the, the sort of technical infrastructure around that that can make this much more possible than dismissing it as outright, outrageously expensive beforehand. You know, the technology that we're learning now can enable us to just do, do more of these sorts of things routinely post-COVID, I think. Yeah, and I think people are becoming quite patient with them. So, you know, they... I work from home, so you know, in a sense, some of this has been quite the norm for me for for a while now. Um, but you know, previously, if my children had walked into a meeting, you might feel the need to apologise. People now don't pay any attention to it because uh -huh. we're all, you know, that's where we are in a similar situation. Albeit, I, I agree with you about not being in it uh, together in the same way. But I suppose also, we're, you know, as we said, we're seeing positives and the negatives. So you know, we're, I think we've seen some really powerful examples of political leadership. And it can't just be about political leaders. That's maybe been part of our problem uh, in the past. It has to be about the, the collaborative, we all coming together in this. Uh, but I think it's been very interesting that we've seen, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to generalise wildly here, but say that actually it's been predominantly from, from female leaders around the world. What has felt quite a different approach to the crisis. So one that's been about being willing to share your own experiences and emotions. Um, you know, for me, I think to be in a position where the First Minister of Scotland is willing to talk about crying because it's, it's quite overwhelming 
is very human. I mean, I think Jacinda Ardern obviously has been incredibly popular, and I know uh, it's no surprise that these are also countries that are very linked into the well-being yes. economy agenda. But even somewhere like uh, you know Germany, where Angela Merkel, I think, has approached things in a very rational, scientific way. Whereas I think it's fair to say in other uh, context that's maybe not been the same sort of leadership. So when you talked earlier about realizing it should be about people first, not the economy, you, you know, you have a situation in the US where actually it's being told sacrifices need to be made for the economy to keep keep functioning. So how do we how do we as a wider public and a, and a more involved civic society encourage and support that within our politicians so that they don't they feel that that's a strength rather than a, a weakness? Well, I mean, I think that the point around leadership and who we've seen, perhaps some of the, the women leaders around the world, how we've seen them perhaps perform better in terms of dealing with COVID is interesting because, you know, one could perhaps make the argument that it's been those countries that have had greater attention to collective well-being prior to, and, you know, Iceland, Finland, Slovenia, Mm-hmm. New Zealand being examples of that have been ones that have been perhaps prepared. They haven't flinched to take mm-hmm. the hard decisions when they needed to. They, so they, they locked down sooner, perhaps. Uh, Vietnam, another one, you know, a country governed mm-hmm. by you know, very different different principles and, and values. Um, you know, taking those decisions prior. I mean, this, this is just my musing. I haven't, I haven't done any sort of scientific analysis of it. But I think one, one could run through that thought experiment. Are there, is there something about those countries that have been already embracing a reprioritization of the economy in service of well-being rather than the other way around that didn't think twice? about taking the decisions they needed to. And I think you, you hinted earlier about the, uh, some of the travails of our you know, scientific <laughs> advisors. I mean, in Scotland and, and just this week at yeah. UK level, I mean, there's something there about authenticity and you know, everyone adhering to the same, the same rules and the same expectations. And I think what's really nice, the other form of leadership we're seeing is by some businesses. Now, I think we're seeing the good, the bad and the ugly of business behaviours in the, in the last few weeks. But the good side of it, we're seeing so many companies, I'd say, put aside short-term profit imperative, let alone profit the you know, potential to profiteer, and actually say, well, we, we want to be part of this collective effort and we can be part of this collective effort. We've got something to, to give. And there are so many examples of, of that that we can all point to. And I think it's that sort of leadership that we need to see, whether it's political or business or in civil society, of people really recognising that there is a greater whole here, there is a greater concern and we all can have a part to play in, in being that. And I think that's where, in a way, leadership really comes. It's sort of finding your right niche in that space and for, for our political leaders, how, how we can support them is one, celebrate it when we see it. Because, it, I mean, goodness knows how difficult it is for any politician and decision maker right now. I mean, I tell you, I don't, don't envy um, our colleagues in the civil service, our colleagues having to take some of these excruciatingly difficult decisions. And so I think having their backs when they take decisions that are aligned with the values of society rather than economic imperatives and celebrating that I think is really important because it bolsters their resolve. Uh, and whether that's on environmental priorities, whether that's on you know, taking the tough decisions to perhaps extend lockdown if that's what the science says is needed, whether it's shaping the, the architecture of a post-COVID economic system, we need to support that. 
But we also, I think, need to create the space for those discussions as well. Um, and there won't be easy answers to so many of these. So having using our own networks, our own spaces, our own spheres of influence to build the momentum and build the demand for the sort of changes that are needed, I think is also really, really important. We can perhaps speak about some examples of that later, later on. Absolutely. I, th I think that's great. And maybe just to kind of close out this section with that for people who are watching this whether now or who are catching up later on how do they become active participants and contributors to this how does this become something that we all are driving rather than uh, than simply watching or waiting for others to deliver for us well, I mean, there's lovely posters up around Glasgow. I'm sure there are posters on, on every street across across the UK, but just saying be kind to each other. I mean, that has to be the actual, mm. the first the first port of call, but that kindness has to then be replicated in our work, in our, our choices or our political choices, uh, how we how we purchase as, as well, you know, being kind to the local manufacturers who are struggling to get back on their, their feet. Um, but also that, that sense of putting kindness at the heart of, heart of our our, just our thinking rather than selfishness. And I think people really recognising just that sort of individualistic society and mentality that we had going into COVID, people now recognising that actually the highlight of the day is, you know, taking a walk through their park and, and speaking to strangers that the way they, as they do that little dance, a two-metre two dance. That, that is, I think, got to be at the heart of it. In terms of practically, I mean, We All has created something called We All Citizens um, that's open for anyone to join. And the purpose of that is to share hope and add value to each other's work, to connect. So I'd encourage everyone to, to jump on we, we All Citizens. But everyone has conversations they can, they can take up and share these ideas so that Ideas that we need to have at the heart of building a well-being economy, whether it's a better measure of progress to GDP, whether it's repurposing our businesses, whether it's all the sorts of shifts we need to make in our infrastructure, how we, you know, how we price carbon. I mean, there's so many layers of changes we need to see. Everyone has an opportunity to build demand for those through their conversations and also point out that there are good things happening. So we know that change will come when political leaders see that these sort of changes are feasible and desirable. And so knowing that there are activities out there, pointing to them, supporting them, having their back, it's, and whether that's sort of a local community renewable energy project, whether it's a participatory budgeting initiative run by a local council, whether it's a social enterprise, all those sorts of activities are the sorts of activities we need in a wellbeing economy. So illuminating them and we talk in Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we talk about how we want to be the amplifiers to really shine a light on those sorts of practices. Everyone can do that so that they come to be seen as, as desirable, not just feasible. Fantastic. And I think that's a very powerful call to action for all of us. Uh, I loved your talk earlier about your comment about not just humanising the inhumane, but actually radically reshifting this, creating something better that we can grow out of this. And I think you know, if this allows us to force, you know, in very challenging circumstances, but the reality of the change we need and deserve, then I think that could actually allow us to, to use this as, as a chance to grow and to develop and to become uh, a better society for everybody. So we truly can all be in it yeah. together rather than feeling we're in competition and opposition. And I, think, and I think that is a task for all of us is to keep our expectations high, to say, yes, it is absolutely important to help people survive tomorrow. But we've got to do better than that. You know, we've got to do better than sticking, you know, sticking plasters on an inhumane system and patching it up 
and keeping it going actually. And, and so it's all, almost that conversation around, well, wait a minute, what are the root causes of, of this? And not taking, not taking that expenditure of, you know, that's driven by that failure to create good lives for people, not celebrating that. Uh, as a success saying, okay, that's, that's useful because it's helping, you know, and I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, top up, topping up poverty wages or um, tacking on tiny, tiny bits of increased welfare for folks rather than really restructuring the system so that the economy does more of the heavy lifting. And, and when I talk about the economy doing more of the heavy lifting, I mean things like bottom-up economic development, from so community wealth building agenda, the foundational economy, massively transforming the ownership of our economic entities. So there's more worker owned or community owned organizations. So you get a distribution of the value share that's different to the way it currently is where people are in service of creating wealth for those who own shares, for example. And so saying, well, we've got to do better than that. And I think that's something that we can all do is say, yes, it's important, these, these survival, survival and coping activities, but a wellbeing economy is not just about survival and coping, it's about system change. I talk about the two SCs of wellbeing. Both are important, but we have to hold on to the, the, that necessary second SC of survival and coping, sorry, of system change that's beyond survival and coping. I think as you will have seen from that conversation, we could easily have kept it going all day. I hope you find it interesting, stimulating. Please use the chance to keep the conversation going uh, on Twitter and on YouTube. Uh, you can follow Catherine at uh, K Trebek and myself at Jamie A. Cook. Uh, I hope you'll join us for future events every Thursday and check out the RSA website for a full list of the reports and events that we're publishing. Thank you and take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.